This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe. Every day at Saks.com. Hello there, Art Curious listeners. Jennifer here with another bonus episode, a recording of our recent live show on Fireside, which, as you know, is an interactive storytelling app. In this discussion from early December, I spoke with Laura Morelli, who is a USA Today bestselling author and art historian who writes amazing historical novels involving the art world. We discussed her background in art history, how she writes and structures her novels, and we get into some of the nitty-gritty on her latest book, The Stolen Lady, a book about the Mona Lisa that takes place in both the Italian Renaissance and in France during World War II. It is not only just a fascinating and engrossing read, but the conversation with Laura herself was absolutely lovely, too. And I hope you enjoy listening in. In the show notes and the blog post for today's episode, I will include a link to order Laura's book. And remember to join us on a future episode of Art Curious Live on Fireside. The next one is coming up on January 12th at 2 p.m. Eastern, when I'll be speaking with author Jeffrey H. Jackson to discuss his latest book, Paper Bullets all about the incredible artists Claude Cahoon and Marcel Moore, two women who risked their lives to defy the Nazis. It is an awesome real-life tale of using subversive tactics to disrupt Hitler's crew, and you are not going to want to miss it. So join me live by registering today for a free Fireside account using my link, firesidechat.com slash Jennifer Dassel. And now, on with the show. Hello, everyone. Hello to all of you joining us in the studio today and for everybody who will be listening to this later on Art Curious. My name is Jennifer Dassel. I am the host and creator of the Art Curious podcast, which explores what I like to call the unexpected, the slightly odd, and the strangely wonderful in art history. And I am here doing a version of what I call Art Curious Live, which is where I get to talk to great art-related people, authors, historians, curators, and the like. And so I am so pleased to be here in the studio with Laura Morelli. Laura, thank you so much for being here with me today. Hi, Jennifer. How are you doing today? I'm doing well. Again, thank you so much for joining me on the show. You were actually one of the first people that I connected with on Fireside because I think you've been using this format for a little while now. Is that right? Yes, it's been really interesting to get acquainted with the platform and, and I'm having a lot of fun with it. Me too. I want to use it more. I just keep uh, I keep having the grandest of ideas of wanting to tune into so many of the amazing programs that I see creators making. So I, there's so many that I want to add to my list. Before Absolutely. we get started, 
Yeah, yeah. Before we get started, I'm just going to give all of our listeners a little bit of an intro to you, Laura, and then we can talk a little bit more about your background. So we are here today to talk about Laura's new book, The Stolen Lady, a novel of World War II and the Mona Lisa. And Laura Morelli is an art historian and USA Today best-selling historical novelist. She holds a PhD in art history from Yale University and is the author of fiction and nonfiction inspired by the history of art. She has taught college students in the U.S. and Italy and has developed lessons for TED-Ed. Her award-winning historical novels include The Painter's Apprentice, The Gondola Maker, The Giant, a novel of Michelangelo's David, The Night Portrait, and this one, this newest one called The Stolen Lady. So, Laura, thank you again. I, I really... I'm so excited. I have the pleasure of knowing you in real life now because we happen to live in the same town, which is completely amazing. But if you could please tell us a little bit more about yourself. I specifically, as an art historian, I always love to know the backstory of how other people got into art history. So how did you come into the field? Where did you begin? Yeah, good question. It's a little bit of an unlikely story, I guess, because I was raised um, on a farm in Georgia, which, you know, is not usually the breeding ground for art historians, <laughs> but there you go. I um, got into art history really through travel. I was privileged enough to be able to travel as a young person. And, um, you know, I can remember specific moments in my preteen and teenager years, you know, when we're so impressionable. I, I can remember standing in front of the Mona Lisa at 12 years old in Paris. I can remember standing in front of the facade of Notre Dame Cathedral and, and just realizing there was this whole world behind us in history. And, you know, particularly these eras that didn't exist in, in, um, in our history in America, you know, and, and, you know, the Middle Ages and the Renaissance and these, these eras that were so rich in history and, and these uh, objects that were so fascinating. And um, so I was really captivated by by art history as a, a preteen and a teenager. I remember visiting um, the island of Murano when I was young also and, and wondering Beautiful. what was so great about Murano glass and how, why was it so famous and what made it special and, um, you know, I had so many questions. And so as a college student and then a graduate student, I just kind of kept going. And the more I explored the the topic of art history, the more fascinating I thought it was um, until I reached uh, the point where I, I went as far, I was a student as long as I could get away with it. <laughs> and when I finally finished with my, my PhD and started teaching and started going to academic conferences more, um, you know, one day I found myself sitting in an academic conference, listening to another art historian read um, a 20-minute paper, and I found myself sort of struggling to stay awake and yawning. And I thought, gee, something is wrong here because mm -hmm. this is really the most interesting topic in the whole world. And yet we academics have found a way to make it very dull and inaccessible <laughs> and, and boring. And so I, I think you know, that combined with the fact that I had always been a writer and had always loved creative writing and fiction, you know, those two things kind of collided for me. And I realized that there was an opportunity to bring art history to a general audience and sort of bring that spark of excitement that I found as a, a young person, but also um, eventually to combine it with writing historical fiction, which was really my favorite thing to read. 
I love this. And you're, I feel like you're speaking directly to my heart and, you know, to the choir where I really was also not, I wasn't that interested in art when I was growing up. I didn't have a lot of uh, exposure to it and background, but what got me into it were those stories that you're talking about right now, all that backstory, all that history, the gobs and gobs of information that I was so excited to know about. So that really is fantastic. Uh, I wanted to ask you about that transition into historical fiction. Was it hard for you as coming from that academic background? As you know, I know so well, as well as you do, we have a very different writing style than a novel situation. Was that difficult for you to transition into? It was a huge transition um, in two respects. You know, one, yes, there, I would say, you know, the craft side of writing fiction is completely different uh, than writing nonfiction. And I had several nonfiction books out um, published, and that came very naturally for me um, out of that academic background. Um, but turning to fiction, even though I had been an, a, a huge bookworm my whole life, I mean, book nerd, read <laughs> so many novels, um, to actually create one I found was a, was a very different beast, a different set of skills, different set of things to learn, um, things that I sort of understood intuitively as a reader, you know, you have to do them on purpose as a writer. And so it was, um, that was a big transition, a big learning curve. Um, and then just career path wise, it was a huge uh, leap of faith because as you know, the uh, academia is founded around this tenure track system. And, you know, I had great opportunities in front of me as an academic and um, it was a freight train heading forward. And I really felt like I had, I just leapt from the train. I just went <laughs> right off the train, tumbling down the embankment. Yes. And I knew that train was going to keep going and I was not going to get back on it. So um, <laughs> that was a big transition for me as well to, to make. But once I did it, once I did leap from the train and started working um, as a historical novelist, it really was so clear to me that it was the right thing to do and it was what I was supposed to do. And the good thing about it is um, it, some very wonderful opportunities have come my way in in academic art history in the meantime that oh, wow. I probably never would have had in front of me had I stayed on that freight train. <laughs> so, oh so it's been a really great uh, thing. And I'm, I'm so glad I did it, even though it was really scary at the time. Oh my gosh. And I think your readers all around the world would completely agree with you. And I, I wanted to talk about that, that you have this amazing opportunity, this niche where you have that amazing background, a very strong research background in art history, and then you're able to create these tales around these works of art. And I just want to share a quote. One of the things that I loved in The Stolen Lady is that you have a quote where it says that centuries old Florentine lady, so the Mona Lisa, had made Anne think about something new, something bigger than herself, of things that gave life mystery and meaning, a glimpse of the vast ocean of history and a world beyond her small one. I loved that so much. I, I highlighted it in my little ebook copy here. And I wanted to ask you, you know, what is it about art and the artists that you talk about in your book that makes them the perfect catalyst or the perfect basis for a historical novel? Because you could write a historical novel about anything, but centering it on art is, I think, so fascinating. 
Yeah, I mean, for me, it's it's a natural thing to write about because the art history is really about people and stories. And so historical fiction is also about that. And so it's um, it's fun to look at the history of art. And I constantly now am looking at objects and events from history and looking at those stories, you know, and, and they just, once you start to look for them, they, they crop up everywhere. And so certainly with a, a portrait like the Mona Lisa or like the lady with the ermine, which was the subject of my last novel, The Night Portrait, you know, portrait is a natural uh, subject for a historical novel because you have already baked in a person and with a story and you know you have the story of the the sitter and then you have the story of the artist and probably there's a story about the patron who's paid for it or commissioned it there's a story story of the viewers or the audience at the time and then in later centuries and so there's there's a lot there, even just with one picture, you know, you can start to see this whole cast of characters and their desires and things that stand in their way from getting whatever it is that they want. And um, so that is, I think, a really, you know, great way to, uh, to, to think about a historical novel is, is through a single work of art or maybe um, a, a, a single place like a, a church or a uh, a castle or something like that, or certainly there have been a lot of historical novels recently about inhabitants of a certain building, you know, or a historic yeah. home or something like that. That's also a great kind of setting for a novel. So I, I just feel like art history lends itself to these incredible stories. And, and I love it when you find a work of art whose real story is even better than anything you could make up, you know, and certainly <laughs> that's the case with the Mona Lisa. Absolutely. I, I mean, was it intimidating choosing probably the most iconic work of art in the world to focus on? Or were you like, no, this is totally fine? Well, when I first sort of wrapped my brain around this, this project, um, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a story that incorporates um, not only the Mona Lisa, but also Leonardo da Vinci and World War II. I, at first, I thought, oh, this is going to be great. And then once I started working on it, I thought, what in the world was I thinking? <laughs> because <laughs> the research for this project was absolutely staggering. I mean, you know that the scholarship on Leonardo da Vinci and even on this one portrait is, I mean, millions of words have been written about, about the Mona Lisa. And so just getting my head around, you know, around that and around the research on this particular portrait and then, you know, throwing in World War II and art theft, there was a lot of research around this. Uh -huh. And the, the biggest challenge with the stolen lady was sort of wrangling all of that down to a 100 and some odd thousand word story. You know, it, I started out with a much bigger ball of clay and I had to cut away a lot of things and, um, you know, get rid of a lot of ideas and scenes that I had planned and try to really cull it down to the, the essence of this narrative that people, you know, was going to hopefully, uh, 
invite readers to keep turning the pages and want to know what happened without being too overwhelming. So it really was quite a beast um, in the end <laughs> to wrangle. <laughs> I can I can only imagine. I think the last fireside chat that I did was with another author named Jennifer Higgy. And at the very end, I like to, as you know, a heads up, I like to do a little lightning round of just some really easy quick questions. And I asked her to describe her writing style in three words and talking about your big ball of clay. She said, edit, edit, edit. And I was thinking, oh, that's perfect. (laughs) Yes, absolutely. And actually you've led me into, I've had probably three questions that you've teed up that I wanted to ask you anyway, but talking about that incredible amount of research and it's very evident in The Stolen Lady and also The Night Portrait, which I've read, uh, and I'm sure all of your books, that you do an impeccable amount of research and very good and in-depth research. So your background as a historian shines through so clearly. So how do you undertake that? Because when you are, as you mentioned, talking about this most famous work of art, one of the most documented artists of all time. Where do you do your research? How are you narrowing it down? And what are you choosing as your favorite sources? Yeah, good question. So um, I really do a lot of planning ahead of time before I start writing. And, you know, when I've when I've chosen what book project I'm going to work on next, I do some kind of... Um, skimming of lots of different subjects, you know, lots of different books, um, webs. I, I always start with primary sources, uh, that is things that were written at the time, because I think that's where you really hear the voices of the people living in the time and place. You start to immerse yourself in the mindset of that time. So I really do um, a lot of kind of broad research to start. I compile um, a detailed timeline. Um, I use um, a software program called Scrivener that is specifically uh, for writers. It's a it's a very sophisticated and uh, complex software. I'm sure I only use a, a small percentage of what it can do, but in Scrivener, I create a timeline. Um, you know of the period and some significant events, and I'm thinking about who my main characters are going to be. Um, Setting for me is really important and something that I sort of gravitate to. Sometimes the setting is the spark of the story for me. So I have a pretty good idea of, you know, where this is going to take place. And um, then I start to think about the characters and I start to wonder who is the right person to tell this story, you know, to, to who is the right person to experience all of these amazing events that I've com- compiled on my timeline. And sometimes the, the protagonist ends up being not the, the first person that you think of, you know, sometimes you have to really question it a little bit to find the right person to tell the story. Um, and then once I do that, I, I sort of I sort of step away from the research for a while and I start to really think about the that person's story, that protagonist's story. And, you know, to try to find the heart of the story, you know, what do they want? What is keeping them from getting what they want? You know, how, mm-hmm. how is the, what's their journey going to be like through the story? How is it, how, what, what's going to be happening with them at, when the story opens and, and what happens to them at the end? So um, I will create a detailed outline of the story and I will um, 
you know, sort of have a skeleton, if you will, of the story before I put any meat on it at all. And then as I'm creating the story and trying to bring this character and characters to life, then I will dip back into the research. And that's when I'll go pretty deep in certain areas. But I found that it's very easy for a historical novelist to just research the weeks and months and years away. I mean, it's so easy. It's such a, there's so many rabbit holes and there's so much time that you could spend researching so many um, ways that you could spend your time researching. And a lot of those things don't end up in the book. Um, So I try to be somewhat strategic after I've sort of got the skeleton of the story to go down the rabbit holes that really matter to the, the, the characters and, um, you know, that really matter to the storyline. And so I found that to be a little bit more efficient. Um, you know, my first book, I went down every rabbit hole and it, it took me seven years to get it out. So, oh, wow. so I, you know, I certainly have heard that from many other historical novelists. And yes. so I think you have to be sort of strategic about, about what you're doing. Absolutely. No, I I am so impressed because I know how difficult it is to edit something down. And I can imagine that especially when you are a novelist and you're creating this world so clearly for your your readers that I would want to kind of go overboard in explaining everything. So I think reining that in uh, is an amazing skill. But talking a little bit about the, you were alluding to the setting being so primary. There's more to my conversation with Laura Morelli that you won't want to miss. So come right back after this message for the rest. I don't know about you, but the last year or so has left me feeling a little bit more of a pain in the neck, literally. I'm sore all the time, and if there's something that I've learned in the past year, it's that I also deserve a little break and to feel good, because taking care of myself and my health is one of the most important things, and that's why you've got to check out Homedics. They have a whole line of massage products, from a massage gun with a built-in hot and cold technology, to a massage cushion that lets you lie down or sit up, depending on your therapeutic needs, to a three-in-one foot massager with vibrations so powerful that it also loosens the muscles in your leg and lower back. Moral of the story, Home Medics has massagers that address your pain points from head to toe. I had the great privilege of testing out both their massage cushion and their foot massager. And let me tell you, they are both life-changing and so popular in my household that I practically have to fight my husband and son to use them. They are fantastic, and my neck really is feeling better and better. Join the millions of customers who trust the Homedics family to take care of their family. So whether you're dealing with chronic pain or just looking to help out your muscles recover after a big workout, we've got good news. Right now, if you go to homemedics.com art and use promo code art, you'll receive a free portable phone sanitizer when you spend $100 or more in massage products. That's H-O-M-E-D-I-C-S dot com slash art and use the promo code art for your free portable phone sanitizer with a $100 massager purchase. You're a creative person, a visual person, drawn to story and eager to make something of your own. So here's something interesting that might be right up your alley, a program designed for both aspiring and established filmmakers. 
NYU Tisch is offering a slate of online courses this spring on screenwriting and documentary filmmaking using a remote learning platform with some powerful and unique features. But this isn't the normal kind of online classes you might be expecting, all basic video and no instructor feedback or class participation. These courses from NYU Tisch Pro go beyond that with an intuitive, interactive interface and polished, clear visuals. This experience is designed to be digital from the ground up rather than adapted from a traditional course, so it all looks and feels great at every turn. Whether you're collaborating with other students around the world as part of a virtual film crew or setting up a one-on-one -on -one interaction with your instructor, you can do it all directly and seamlessly from Tish's platform. I really like one feature that allows your professor or virtual crewmate to leave a comment at a specific point on a video timeline so that you can zero in on exactly what it is they're talking about. Plus, the courses are designed to offer total scheduling flexibility so students can delve into the material at their own pace, reviewing video lectures delivered by Tisch faculty and produced by real-life filmmakers. And no experience or background of film is needed. How amazing does that sound? With NYU's Tisch Pro Online, you can learn how to bring your story to life. 2022 is right around the corner, and this is a great way to act on your New Year's resolution. It's time to finally get that story you've been thinking about out of your head and onto the screen. The deadline for spring courses is January 7th, so act now. Learn more at tishpro.smashcut.com slash artcurious. That's T-I-S-C-H-P-R-O dot smashcut.com slash artcurious. This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe. Every day at Saks.com. So I wanted to ask you about how you decided on the characters and also the timelines, because you have this dual timeline in The Stolen Lady where we're fluctuating between Florence during the Renaissance and Paris during World War II. And then we also have these three or four main characters. So we have Anne, who's in Paris in the Second World War. And then we have Bellina and even Leonardo. And then also, of course, Lisa Ghirardini herself, the, the Mona Lisa of the portrait. So how did you go ahead and side on those people. So we have a combination of real life people and people that you've made up for the purposes of your story. Were you tempted at any point just to choose one period or one person's perspective? Or did you always have this idea that it would be this contrasting narrative? For this particular book, it was always a dual timeline story, um, very much like the night portrait. What I found interesting about the Mona Lisa is the fact that um, you have this whole story at the time of the portrait's creation, and then there's another incredible parallel story in the 20th century. And so um, I, I find that those kinds of connections over a long span of history are so interesting. Um, and I think it, it helps sort of helps you see a work of art better when you can see the whole history, you know, from beginning to end. Certainly after Leonardo da Vinci passed away, this portrait went on to have an entire adventure, you know, for the next yes. 500 <laughs> years. And so I, that was really what fascinated me in this story was to kind of follow the adventure of the Mona Lisa um, from the time of its creation 
um, and then uh, to follow it in during World War II when it was really in the crosshairs of the uh, of the Nazis. You may know that the Nazis were trying to, they either stole or tried to steal every known painting by Leonardo da Vinci. And certainly the Mona Lisa was at the very top of their list and the Louvre staff did everything in their power to hide it from them. So um, in thinking about the main characters of the Stolen Lady, um, Leonardo da Vinci was bound to be one of them. He um, was a main character in the night portrait. I really enjoyed writing his character so much. Um, and I wanted to pick up his story where the night portrait left off and um, continue to explore his life um, through the uh, the, end, the latter part of, of his life and career. But in addition, um, there are a lot of other um, real life historical characters in the book, both in the Italian Renaissance and World War II. But the two primary characters, the two protagonists are both fictional. Um, in the Italian Renaissance, we follow Bellina. She is a servant in Lisa Giardini's household. And um, in the 20th century, we follow Anne, who is um, an assistant, a curatorial archival assistant in the uh, Louvre in the 20th century, at, and she's working there at the time that they decide to evacuate the museum because the Germans are on their way to Paris. So I think that the advantage of utilizing fictional characters as protagonists is that they can be exactly where you need them to be at the right time for the story, for the, for the narrative. And yes. so, um, and particularly a servant character I found is very handy because they, um, you know, a, a character like Belina would have actually had quite a bit more freedom, even though she was a servant than Lisa herself, because Lisa, like any upstanding Italian Renaissance wife of a, of a cloth merchant, would have mostly been expected to spend her time within the walls of her own home, caring for her children, doing needle crafts, charitable works. She would have spent a lot of time at the local monasteries, giving her time. She, her, her world was relatively circumscribed, but a servant could be not only in Lisa's bedroom, but could also be in the kitchen, could also be at the local market, could be in Leonardo da Vinci's studio, could be in the visitor's corridor of a monastery, could be in a, a, an underground uh, dyer's workshop where they were planning to, uh, to oust the Medici from Florence. She could be in all sorts of very useful locations and get important information for the story. Um, and then in World War II, I, I thought also it would be great to um, see this adventure through the eyes of someone who stayed with the Mona Lisa throughout her exodus into the French countryside when she was moved five to five different locations over, over the course of six years. I loved that. And I have to say that I I only read a little bit of historical fiction. I want to read more, though. And one of the reasons is because I felt like I was sitting in the truck alongside Anne as she is making these escapes. And I think you talk about it as being a little bit of a hide and seek that happens between her and the Louvre, uh, you know, the Louvre officials as they are trying to 
confound the Nazis and stay one step ahead the whole time. And I think that was really, really incredible because you're able to make it this historical thing that really happened. You were able to treat it a little bit like a thriller. So it just really kept you turning the page, I think. But I love... Oh, yeah, of course. But I loved what you're saying about Belina because I think that's something that I don't know that I really consider so often. I think we think about the the upper class in general, but especially in Renaissance Italy, we would think, oh, you know, a, a, a woman who married well and lived in this wealthy family, you would think that she would have the best of everything because she has more monetary and financial resources. But I love that Bellina actually has so much more freedom just because she's able to able to inhabit these spaces so much more. So she must have been really fun to write. Yes, and challenging too. I would say that of all the characters in The Stolen Lady, Belina was the biggest challenge, um, partly because um, getting into her mindset, without spoiling the story, she gets involved in some underground politics. And, you know, Renaissance Florence was a pretty brutal place, um, (laughs) you know, at that time when it came to political affiliations. And um, I had always wanted to write a character who threw a precious object onto the bonfire of the vanities in Florence in the 15th century. And so I decided that Bellina was the perfect victim for this (laughs) exercise, (laughs) but it was actually really challenging to get into the mindset, you know, of someone who was so filled with, um, with conviction around, you know, around these ideals that were flying around in, in, in 15th century Florence, that she would be compelled to throw something precious onto the flames. Um, and so that was, uh, that was really interesting. It took a lot of research, a lot of reading, a lot of reflection, um, and thinking about something, you know, maybe similar that, that we could relate to in the 21st century. And, um, so yeah, it was a, she was a really interesting character for me to work with. We talked about all of these characters that you maybe could have included, real life characters and fictional characters you could have additionally added to the story. What kind of details or information did you want to include? What storylines or little tidbits of information did you discover while you were doing your research that you just didn't get the chance or, or could find the place to include in this particular story? Oh, so many things. And really, I mean, I I would say with every book I write, there are so many things that you would love to include that they don't necessarily serve the the drive of the narrative. They don't keep it moving forward. Maybe they take you somewhere sideways, you know, and so you want to make sure that you're always moving the reader forward and not sideways. (laughs) And so, um, you know, there, there were so many other um, countryside depots that the Louvre staff, you know, was using that I could have made a detour to. Um, there were so many other works of art that I could have focused on as well as the Mona Lisa. So many interesting real life people that I could have written about. I mean, so much, you know, at the end, really only a narrow slice of the research gets you know, put in the service of the story, even though you've done so much research, sometimes it's only, you know, those hand selected pieces that sort of uh, make it into the final cut, if you will. 
Oh, yeah, I can imagine. Now, I thought that this novel was such a delightful, like a little virtual trip around Europe um, and, and, of course, back in time as well. But I remember in speaking to you when we've met in person and then also just chatting over email that you mentioned that this happened to be a really great escape for you to write as well. And I wanted to know if you could talk about that a little bit, just given the time in which you were working on writing this book. Yeah, so it just so happened that I was deep in revisions on this story um, in March 2020 and for the following, the ensuing months. And so I um, lived in France for several years. I lived in Italy for several years. I've done, um, you know, a lot of in-person research in the, the National Archives in Paris and the Cathedral Archives in Florence. Um, I've, you know, walked up and down past Lisa Giardini's house a million times. I mean, <laughs> I've, I've covered a lot of the ground in the, in the Loire Valley where some of these castles were, but I couldn't go to any of those places during the time that I was writing this book. And so it was it was really interesting because, you know, like everyone in the world, you know, I was in this kind of surreal place where I was at home with, um, you know, my husband and my four children all on Zoom <laughs> in different corners of the house. And, you know, there I was either in at my desk or if it was too loud, which it often was, <laughs> you know, then I was outside with the dog in a lawn chair or, you know, sitting outside at the table or, um, you know, running off to my mom's house or something like that <laughs> and um, and and working on, through this story. And so as soon as I was sort of back in, had my head back into the story, then suddenly I was whisked away to Renaissance Florence or the French countryside in the 1940s. And so it was a really amazing, vicarious journey in such a strange time. Um, and I, I've gotten a lot of emails from readers saying that they were really grateful for the opportunity to be whisked away to these places during a time when we have not been able to travel. So if it yes. brought someone else that kind of joy of vicarious travel as it did for me, then that makes me happy. 100%. I can say that was definitely my experience. And I feel like books and art both are such incredible and impeccable time machines, because they are able to transport us to those different places in history, and even just within our own minds that allows us to have that respite. So probably one of those questions that's like a creative's favorite and least favorite at the same time. What is next for you? What are you doing right now? What are you working on? Well, I'm working on another um, story that's set in Florence. Um, this one is set completely um, during the uh, World War II era, and it's about the fate of the uh, the objects in the Uffizi during World War II. It's a historical novel, and um, I'm really having a lot of fun with it. And I, my fingers crossed, fingers crossed, I'll be able to actually do some research on site this time. Um, oh, we'll see. So. <laughs> but, that would be amazing. Um, absolutely. But I'm, I'm having a lot of fun with the story. I mean, you pick such great 
places and eras to to play in. So I love that. I just want to remind our friends in the audience here who are in their studio of Fireside today that if you haven't already noticed that in the little fortune cookie link, you'll see that there is a link to buy The Stolen Lady. So if you have not had the chance to pick up a copy yet, I highly recommend that you do so. It is a wonderful read. And Laura, you are a fantastic writer and I've loved speaking with you today. Before we end, I wanted to know if you would be open to just a few brief lightning round questions. Yeah, sure. Absolutely. Fire away. Excellent. Okay, here we go. You can be as brief or as long-winded as you want. I am totally open. So who are your favorite artists? Oh, gosh, Um, so many. Let's see. Um, I would say for the more recent past, I love Mark Rothko. Um, and I think that, that his work is sort of like the, uh, the medieval icons, which are probably one of my favorites too. Although of course we don't have as many, uh, known artists from that time. I was just, uh, before I got on with you looking at a panel painting by Giotto that I'm writing about, um, writing about the adoration of the Magi for a, for a Christmas piece that I'm doing and, um, love Giotto and, um, let's see who else. I love Artemisia Gentileschi. I'm also researching something about her at the moment. Love it. Uh, I've written about Michelangelo's David, as you know, both as as an art historian and also as a historical novelist. And so what's not to love there? Exactly. (laughs) So much good stuff. And I want to say you're talking about the icons, medieval icons. I actually, just quite coincidentally, as of the recording of this, not necessarily when it will be released on the podcast, but as of the fireside recording right now, my next episode on Art Curious is about medieval art. So I love talking about icons. I love that period. I actually don't know a lot about it um, other than the occasional very small amount of classes I took in grad school, but that is a fascinating period. It is. And actually, I I am a medievalist by training. I mean, that's what I really focused on in my studies and my PhD. And um, it's, yes, you can't name as nearly as many artists, but there are some absolutely breathtaking and fascinating works of art from that period. Absolutely. And I think it gets such a bad rap by people who don't know a lot about it as, you know, the dark ages. So that's really one of the things that I want to talk about on this upcoming episode. So what is one of your favorite recent books that you've read? There have been some really great historical novels come out recently. I just finished The Great Alone by Kristen Hanna, which is, I highly recommend it. It's set in Alaska in the 1970s. Very good. I loved The Exiles by Christina Baker Klein. It's in Australia and at sea in the 19th century. And that was a really great story. I love to read books about places um, that I don't know very well. Um, I think that's a lot of fun. Speaking of virtual travel and um, probably one of my favorites that I've read recently is Hemnet by Maggie O'Farrell. I was really in awe of the writing. The writing was really stunning. And uh, so I, uh, I really appreciated that as well. I was a little nervous about that one because children in peril is not my favorite subject. Oh, <laughs> um, right. Same. But, but it was, um, it, it really wasn't necessarily about that. So, it, but the writing was absolutely phenomenal. 
Oh, I love that. Okay, that makes me feel a little bit better. I'm over here scribbling notes while you're talking. So now I can keep that one on the list for sure. Um, I, you probably have alluded to it a little bit, but I'm wondering if there are others in terms of your favorite time periods. Okay, so there, I really have to say, first of all, that um, most of my art historian colleagues really the coveted job is to teach a course in your specific area, your specialty. Yeah. But I must admit that I have always loved teaching the Art History 101 survey because, as I mentioned earlier, I really love to see these connections between yes. eras far distant from one another. And my students always tease me for showing them ridiculous comparisons on tests because, <laughs> because you know, I'll show something from the ancient world and something from the contemporary world, because I think it's fascinating to, to see connections and things that resonate over the centuries. Um, but having said that, um, I love the ancient Etruscans. Um, I teach a course online on Etruscan art, and it is absolutely one of my favorite topics. And it's really one of those nerdy esoteric topics that most people <laughs> don't even get a chance to explore. Um, I love um, I love the Middle Ages. Like I mentioned, it's really been a passion for me for a long time. I love the Renaissance. And um, those, so those are some of my favorites. I love it. So now it's your turn to describe your writing style in three words. In three words. Well, now that you've said edit, 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 I can't think of anything better than that. <laughs> and it's such an important part of the, of the writing process. But I would say for me, probably it's more uh, research, edit, edit. <laughs> Ooh, yes, I love it. Okay, last lightning round question. What is your hidden talent? Ooh, that one is tricky. A hidden talent. Well, I'm, I'm a pretty good cook, actually. So maybe, I don't know how hidden that one is, but it's something <laughs> that, that I've, gotten, I've gotten better at with age. I love it. I think if your, your readers or even our listeners don't know that about you right now, that means it is a hidden talent. So I think that's a perfectly wonderful inclusion. So Laura, again, this was so much fun. Thank you for joining me here on Fireside. And thank you for being somebody I connect with in real life as well. I, I've had so much fun getting to know you over the last couple of months. Yeah, and um, me too. Thank you so much. I really appreciate your time. Oh, anytime. I'm hoping uh, one of my plans for Art Curious in the next year is to do kind of an art I mean, similar to what we're doing here, but I want to do an Art Curious summer book club or summer reading. So I think it would be really fun to have you back on and maybe we could talk about one of your other books and um, get a bunch of people reading it and maybe we could all join here on Fireside to talk about it together. That would be awesome. I would love it. Thank you. And Absolutely. in the meantime, if, if any of your listeners um, want to learn more, they can just head over to lauramorelli.com and you'll find everything there. Perfect. Anything else that you want to shout out before we leave today? Nope, that's it. You can you can download a free story. You can take an art history class. You can uh, read a book at lauramorelli.com. It's all there. 
Perfect. Thank you so much, Laura. And thank you so much to our studio audience today. Oh, I'm seeing some heart icons going around. So thank you, everyone. This episode will be airing on Art Curious at a later point, probably the end of this month. So keep an eye on that there wherever you find your podcast if you want to replay it or if you are listening to it fresh for the first time. So thank you again, Laura. Thank you, everyone. And we will see you back here next time. Thanks, Jennifer. Thanks, everybody. Thank you. Bye, everyone. Bye. Thank you, listeners, for tuning into this bonus episode recorded live on Fireside. Remember to join me next time, January 12th at 2 p.m. Eastern for Jeffrey H. Jackson's Paper Bullets. And watch our social media announcements for other upcoming live shows. And send me your questions in advance if you want me to share and discuss any of them on Fireside. Register today at firesidechat.com slash Jennifer Dassel. See you on Fireside soon and see you back here in mid-January for a new episode of Art Curious.